When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode of See Here is dedicated to the memories of the Immortals, Al Blaine, Glenn Campbell, Neon Russell, and all those that made the music for a lifetime. Welcome to See Here. Episode 110 of the See Here podcast. This show is proudly part of the Pantheon Network of Music Discussion Podcast. My name is Morris Bustinski. I'm here in Melbourne. And joining me, as always, to my wonderful, beautiful music and film knowledgeable friends, Kerry Fristo over in Cape Cod. Hello. And <laughs> over in Brantford, Ontario, Mr. Tim Merrill. Hey. We're here today to talk about the 2015 released film, although there is a 2008 version that was shown at South by Southwest, a documentary called The Wrecking Crew, directed by one Denny Tedesco, who is the son of the great Tommy Tedesco, a member of The Wrecking Crew. And I'll have a story to tell you later about Denny Tedesco and his involvement with the See Here crew in a future episode. Very excited about that. For those of you out there who don't know the name the wrecking crew let's play the trailer and this will give you a bit of an idea of who the wrecking crew were and the songs that you know even if you don't know the names behind the songs you're listening to see here episode 110 when we're ready to sing we step up at the microphones and it comes out something like this We came in the studios with Levi's and T-shirts, smoking cigarettes. The older guys were saying they're going to wreck the music business. In the hardcore producing area, everybody knew what went on there. I mean, everybody knew that the best musicians played in all the sessions, but we as the general public didn't know. They played so well, and they played so well together. I was in awe of them because of Phil Spector. I pulled my car over the side of the road and said, what am I listening to here? The musicians were really the unsung heroes of all those hit records. When I listen to the record, it is so apparent that these guys were just really so good. And you can see why everybody used them. The Wrecking Crew was the focal point of the music. They were the ones with all the spirit and all the know-how. We made up a lot of arrangements ourselves. We would either augment or totally replace a group. 
the public was oblivious that there was a secret star maker machinery. I had no idea that people didn't play their own records until the monkeys came along. We were so busy. I was making more money than the president of the United States. Seven records of the year. It was unbelievable. Here's the way that the beat goes on, sounded when we first heard it. La -di da da da. Yeah, uh oh. The third line I came up with was. goes on they were the stone cold rock and roll professionals and there may never be a group of that caliber again We're back. Morris here. Kerry over there. Tim also over there. You're listening to See Here 110. And this time around, we're talking about the 2015 released film, The Wrecking Crew, directed by Denny Tedesco, son of the session guitarist Tommy Tedesco, and features a plethora of great LA session musicians. Some of them, Carol Kay, bassist Earl Palmer and Hal Blaine, two great drummers, Tommy Tedesco, an incredible guitar player, and Plas Johnson, saxophone player, he of the Pink Panther theme. You know his tone, even if you don't know the name. So IMDB describes this as a celebration of the musical work of a group of session musicians known as the Wrecking Crew, a band that provided backup instrumentals to such legendary recording artists as Frank Sinatra, the Beach Boys, and Bing Crosby. Did they back... Oh, actually, sorry, no. They did back up Bing Crosby because this week I heard a horrible version of Hey Jude as sung by Bing Crosby. Hey Jude, don't make it bad. Take a sad song and make it better. Remember the letter into your heart. Then you can start to make it better. Hey, wow. <laughs> Ooh, cringe. <laughs> hey Jude, bada bada bing. Anyway. <laughs> I won't do that again. There's a lot to talk about in regards to uh, the actual film, plus as well our own impressions of the work of these musicians and what they meant in our music listening lives. Carrie, this film was your pick. I'm immensely happy that you picked this one. I hadn't thought of this in, in a long while. Where did you first see it? Was it at a festival or on DVD or whatever? And what was the first time that you were aware of the wrecking crew of this group of LA session musicians behind a song that you loved? You know, I'm not sure when I first realized that the people that were the front people of a band were not the ones actually playing the music. Maybe it was the monkeys. <laughs> you know, I mean, maybe it was something reading about the monkeys, you know, because I wasn't contemporaries of the monkeys. But I mean, I watched reruns of that TV show when I was a kid. And I think I might have said something to my dad. And he said, yeah, you know, they didn't play their own instruments, you know. Up to a point. Headquarters, I started doing their own instruments. But that's another story. In the last, I don't know, it was maybe two years ago, I saw... 
a weird compilation band, sort of like a Ringo's All-Star band, but not with Ringo. And it had Christopher Cross, Mickey Dolenz, Todd Rundgren, and the guy from Badfinger, who now I can't think oh, of his name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, now I'm blanking. It was kind of a weird, but it was really interesting. They played stuff together. They played a lot of Beatles tunes. And then they also played their hits, you know, Mickey Dolenz. Yeah. He was really good. It was sort of billed as a tribute to the Beatles, because honestly, they played all these Beatles tunes together. And then right. they played a couple Todd Rundgren songs, a couple Monkey tunes, a couple Badfinger tunes. <laughs> so it was sort of a an all-star Ringo band, that or the Bill Wyman Rhythm Kings or something, that kind of thing. And Mickey Dolenz was terrific. He was really good. And he's very personal, too, on stage. He's fun. He has a really good voice. And I mean, he apparently, he must have been quite a friendly guy. He apparently was friendly with the Beatles. He was friendly with Zappa. He was friendly Harry with Nelson. That, that Laurel Canyon crowd, you know? And so I think he really fit in with that group. Two of my favorite songs of all time are actually two songs sung by him. Pleasant Valley Sunday, mm. which I, lo- I love, and The Porpoise Song. the beginning yep. of the film. That song, I love that song. And I mean, he's, he's got the perfect voice for that. Play by the Wrecking Crew. And Pleasant yep. Valley Sunday, that's a Carol King, Jerry Goffin tune, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yep. So that's sort yep. of a Brill building, Wrecking Crew yep. by proxy. I sort of knew that this existed, that they were sort of ghost musicians, as there are right. ghost writers. But honestly, I didn't see this movie until I decided that we should watch it for the show. <laughs> okay, wonderful. I had read about it. I had read that's about awesome. it, but I hadn't actually seen it so i was really excited to see it and i quite enjoyed it i wish it had gone deeper but that's sort of always the case with a subject that you're interested in a 90 minute film what are you gonna do oh i know Uh, it it flew by it really flew by i thought it was well presented i can always use more time with brian wilson but that's just me but some of the stuff that really fascinated me was i just loved that they talked about all the different people that these people had played with and for and the fact that they would go and they would play with Frank Sinatra in the morning and the Beach Boys in the afternoon, and then they would go and do three jingles for TV ads or something. Yeah. That was fascinating to but me. You know what this was like to me? It was like Woody Allen Zellick. Zellick could just glom on to whatever situation mm-hmm. he was in and just be perfect in it. It was just bizarre. Like you're saying, Carrie, you can go from this to that to the other thing, and you're right. just, it's like you've been doing it for your whole life. There actually is another Woody Allen connection to this film. I heard an interview with Denny Tedesco and he said that in putting Carol Kay, Hal Blaine, Tommy Tedesco and Plas Johnson in the one room around the table with a camera going around the table was his direct tribute to Broadway Danny Rose. He wanted it to look oh, like wow. that. Wow. I love I that connection. Love that Very connection deliberate. Too. It's, not, it's not just us hypothesizing. He is actually on the record as having said that's what he wanted to do. Oh, that's yeah. cool. Interesting. But you know what? Like what you were talking about, Carrie, about the whole thing with Mickey Dolans and everybody getting together and that. I think like it goes back to a lot of the, the original origin of the blues. 
Because, you know, if you really see how like Robert Johnson and how so many people took what Robert Johnson did and just built on them. Guys like, for example, Howling Wolf's band, they're playing standards. They could play anything. The same thing goes with jazz. I mean, like there were jazz guys that could barely read. They could read music. There was guys that could who were self-admitted, almost illiterate, but could read music. They could just blow everybody away, do anything. This whole concept of it all started with a wrecking crew. And I'm not putting down the wrecking crew in any way, shape, or form, but I'm just saying a lot of this came from where you had African American musicians in one way where they were forced to kind of come together because of segregation, because of prejudice and all these things. They were forced to kind of we'll jam together, whatever, or guys like Count Basie or Louis Armstrong would put together bands of all these crackerjack guys that could play anything. So, I mean, this whole thing has been going on for a long, long time. Oh, sure. I mean, I tend to think of it, in, to some extent, in economic terms. It's one mm-hmm. of the things we talked about with in the Free the Jazz and stuff like that, right. where if these, these people wanted to play this atonal, very spontaneous kind of jazz music, there's going to be an audience for it, but it's kind of a niche audience. It's a little small, and it's not going to necessarily pay the bills. Same thing with musicians. I mean, you know, one of the guys, who was it? Earl Palmer, I think, yeah. and said, he goes, I was primarily a jazz guy, but I mean, that didn't pay the bills. So you had to adapt. Obviously, there are different styles, and you can say, right. okay, this is a flamenco beat on a, the guitar, and this is a more of a rock beat, and this is a walking blues, and this is, you know, all this kind of different stuff. The really good players can move from one to the other, and these guys and women were very talented. And a lot of them, one of the things was that they would read the sides that they got, and they would look at it, and they go, well, that's dull as dishwater. That needs something. Do you mind if I play around with this for a half an hour and come back and see if I can get something, you know, and then and then you get the beginning of the Sonny and Cher that right. Carol Kay, you know, doom, 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 which wasn't written. The beat goes on The beat goes on Drums keep pounding a rhythm to the brain you know, as much as I think the guy's personally cheesy, it's almost like Emerald Legrassi, like the chef, where he says, give it the bam. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like that's what they were doing. They are giving it the bam. It's really interesting to me what you were talking about, or like you're talking about Earl Palmer. I forget who it was where you were saying people didn't want to play that rock and roll stuff. It was beneath them. It's kind of like earning wasn't beneath me. You know, it's like, what, right. eating is beneath you? Pay, feeding your kids is beneath you? Sort of moving away from that thing for a second, but still staying on Earl Palmer. Before The Wrecking Crew, even if Earl Palmer had never gone west to California, he was already a session musician royalty because maybe a few songs that you might have heard of, Long Tall Sally and Tutti Fruity by Little Richard. Gonna tell and Mary John, he claimed me as a music buddy and a lot of fun. Blueberry Hell by Fats Domino, Lordy Miss Claudy by Lloyd Price.
That's all Earl Palmer. He was like New Orleans session drummer extraordinaire, you know, stuff that we all love and all know. But of course, going out to California, out to LA, that only increased his workload a hell of a lot more. Now, you're right. There were musicians who had thought that this was somewhat beneath them and I think like there's even at one point in the film where Glenn Campbell who raises that point maybe it was Joe Osborne I don't remember had gone and said yeah we had certain ideas about this it was too simplistic but then he turns around and says they got to the point where we could play this shit better than even they could the whole making a living thing too the you know the actress Hattie McDaniel who was in Gone famously in Gone with the Wind Gone and she won wind. an Oscar and one of the things is a lot of other black people in general were upset with her because she played maids all the time in shows. And they said that they didn't think that it was a good idea for her to play these parts that it misrepresented black culture. And she said, hey, man, <laughs> I'd, r- I'd rather play a maid than be one. You know, I, I, right. I'm living in a mansion in Brentwood. Right. <laughs> you actually made me think of something, too, now that I watched an interview with Leah. Leon Russell. And Leon's one of my, like, I love Leon to the ends of the earth, man, rest his soul. But I watched an interview with him where he did an album at the end of his time with Elton John. I knew from the first night I met you, something just wasn't quite right. Look like a innocent stranger, but something was just out of sight. And so Leon was talking about, I don't want to misquote him or anything, but he was saying that when he started out, they wanted to pay per song. But then they got to a point where they could bang out so many songs, but then the musicians started to figure out that it would actually be more beneficial for them to get paid per session. Because with the session, they had to take the time to go over it and mix it. If there was anything that needed to fix, bring guys back in, all of this. So it's like, you know, you could, he, he was saying something to the, to the effect of you could bang out a song in two hours, but for a session, he said it might be up to like three days. Right. So he was saying you're better off getting paid for the session. Right. But what I'm getting to is then you get to a point of in the film where you got Brian Wilson with Pet Sounds. And then that, go, you know, now imagine, okay, you get paid per song, but with the sessions, and you got an unlimited bank account with the label. And they just said to Brian, well, do what you think is best. They did, carte blanche. The difference between someone like Brian Wilson, who was basically the songwriting genius and the, the Wrecking Crew were like his proxy Beach Boys, basically. So he was running those sessions as the leader of a band, as a right. brand mm-hmm. name or whatever you want to call it, as mm-hmm. opposed to, in many cases, individual singers who came in with a song written by, well, uh, Carol King from the East Coast. So they were just sort of saying, yep, we've already got all the music worked out. You just come in and you sing on it. That's a different thing. And that's probably the biggest difference between a band, which is doing their own thing, not working with session musicians. They seem to have been given in the 60s a lot of carte blanche to do as many sessions as they wanted and take their time, as opposed to what you were saying before, Kerry, about the wrecking crew. Essentially, it's about economics. These people, they come in, they're not 
not working nine to five. They're working seven in the morning or ten at night. But ostensibly, they're working the day job so they can put food on the table. This whole rock and roll mythology about rock and roll being rebellion, not for these guys. These are guys who came from the jazz world. They'd done their time on the road. They worked out it's far more financially profitable to be working in a studio. It's just like, look, we'll record whatever you want. You can promote it and sell it however you like. We're just here to make the music. As opposed to a band, they're trying to make an artistic statement. These guys, yeah, sure, they might experiment to make the sound a bit more commercial, but they're not there as I hear it to make something that's going to push the boundaries of sound. I mean, you're not sort of thinking the Wrecking Crew thinking, we want to experiment. We want to see if we can do something with a wah-wah pedal that's going to make it more psychedelic. That was up to the bands to do, but it seems it like that's was. Like, well, if that's if this is the sound, then we'll we'll just replicate. But it that. does what? seem like the Wrecking Crew did contribute. Oh yeah, you know, but not I mean, just their playing ability and their reading ability, but their you know what this needs something, or you know, just changing the cadence of something slightly, or you know what I mean, or just adding a, these um, little touches. Would I be wrong to say, insofar to say that the Wrecking Crew was actually a paint box for Brian Wilson for pet soaps. Oh yeah. They were a total I agree. Paint. I agree they with were... you. I may not always love you, but long as there are stars above you, you never need to doubt it. I'll make you so sure about it. God only knows what I'd be without you. Absolutely. They're Brian Wilson's paint box. But there was that whole story about the band The Association who did that song Windy and how pissed off that they were that none of them got to play on the session or for that matter with the birds. Yeah, I was going to say Roger McGuinn. Yeah. Except Roger McGuinn. Yeah, yeah. But essentially none of them got to play on the, the session that had their name on the front cover because the company said, we're only paying for so many hours studio time. These guys right. will get it done. Boom, 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 boom. None of this artistic experimentation stuff these guys will record a sound that will sell whereas brian wilson said no 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 no, that doesn't work like that with me and there's a great scene we spoke about this years ago i think with frank santa padre when we we're talking about love and mercy and there's that whole scene where brian it's recreated he's working with the wrecking crew and he says to the actress who's playing carol Kay, oh no carol Kay says to him you've got the double bass playing this and you've got me and the electric bass playing that that doesn't quite work and brian says oh well, i think it works in my head why don't you try it whereas if if it were someone who wasn't Brian Wilson, they just said, no, that doesn't work. We're just going to do this anyway. And the association, right. we're just, to them, we're just the singing talent, not the musical talent. You want to go on the road and play your instruments, go for it. But in the studio, we're the boss. We've got three hours to knock four songs off. the association it's like none of us now we're playing this song here now all us all are just <laughs> broke that made me laugh man and when they brought up the Millie Vanilli thing that really made me laugh too yeah when you know? they kept saying that yeah that was funny what's yeah. that yeah. band Millie Vanilli <laughs> now there's two questions that I have to come out of this film and this is the first one is this 
There were certain individuals that were part of the wrecking crew that came into their own recognition and fame. For example, three that I'm going to say off the top of my head, Glenn Campbell, Leon Russell, uh-huh. and uh-huh. Hal Blaine. What was it that about those three or certain individuals that propelled them or pushed them compared to the rest of the wrecking crew? Well, Glenn Campbell could also sing, right. which is a big deal. And he also, right. he's a nice, he's a nice looking man. He was smart. He was quick, um, apparently very quick, because apparently he didn't read music, so he was able to just figure it out and be a really good player, which is very interesting. I always like to hear those stories. And, you know, he had that star quality, I guess, that he could do. And Leon Russell just had such a different sound when he started making his own music. The thing is that you can be a fantastic player of a particular instrument or many, maybe many instruments, but if you don't have that thing or you right. don't catch lightning in a bottle, you know what I mean? You come up some concept that nobody ever thought of before or some sound that really just hits it. You're not going to do anything. And maybe these people were very good musicians, but perhaps they weren't writers. Or you get opportunities. Like, for example, I'm thinking about Leon with Joe Cocker. Right. Well, that's where I first heard about Leon Russell was on that Mad Dogs and Englishmen album. Absolutely. That's, that's what I'm true. saying, man. You know, you you know, it's it, you get a platform, you get an opportunity. The one thing I like is when Jimmy Webb's in the in the documentary when he's talking about what he contributed and, and the whole scene at the time because Jimmy Webb wrote songs for Glenn Campbell. I mean, obviously, I don't know, opportunity knocks once, you know, and, and for some... I also get the impression, though, that a lot of these musicians didn't want that life because they knew, I go into the session today, I'm going to record something, I'll be at home in my own bed tonight, and I'll come back tomorrow. I, they, a lot of them, they liked that, well, not really, Literally nine to five, but we'll call it nine to five type of lifestyle. Right. As opposed to being on the road constantly and never know, waking up and you don't know where you are and, and you haven't seen your wife or your kids in three months. And that's just for the white musicians because, well, the other thing I wanted to bring up is like the Wrecking Crew film came out as part of a whole bunch of other films about the background musicians, the session musicians, right. so Standing in the Shadows of Motown, 20 Feet from Stardom, Muscle Shoals about the Swampers. And right. one a film uh, in a different sort of way, the library music film, which we discussed on the show a few years ago, Tim. But in Standing in the Shadows of Motown, they make note that a lot of these musicians, they go on the Motown package tours. And can you imagine you know, you're in Diana Ross and the Supremes with the Funk Brothers or whoever else is touring with them being in the South? Right. So it's not just a matter of being on the road. A lot of the black musicians were thinking, would I rather stay in Los Angeles or would I rather go to Alabama on a tour? I don't think so. I think I'll, right. I'm quite happy to well, stay where I am. You know what's funny is it something came into my mind where, you know the bit of the film where they're talking about where Vegas with Hal Blaine's name is up on the marquee, right? I remember listening to unedited interview with Buddy Rich where they're talking about Buddy Rich in Vegas and he wanted to be on the road. And they said, you know, why did you want to be on the road as opposed to having a residency, as they called it now, a residency in Vegas? And he said, listen, I didn't want to wind up being a wind-up monkey chained to a fucking slot machine in Vegas. 
<laughs> and I mean, I understand like what he was saying. Like Buddy Rich was a guy who wanted to have every night go town to town to town and have something random and have random people. But when you're in the same locale, in the same room, with the same sound guy and the same cigarette girl and the same everything, and all of a sudden everybody's just like, you're on, dance, monkey, dance. No, I get that. So I understand what you're saying, Morris, about a lot of the guys not wanting to have the recognition and kind of sitting in the shadows saying, look, I can make bank and I can still go out and buy my groceries without everybody, you know, clamoring all over me. I'll pose this question to you because, like, certainly thinking about all these other session musicians, I mean, the Wrecking Crew are the L.A. royalty, but you had Muscle Shoals in Alabama, the Muscle right. Shoals Rhythm Section, the Funk Brothers up in Detroit. There are other bands that we've yet to see films of, although maybe we will, I don't know. There's the Nashville A-Team, a duo that I know you'd be a huge fan of, Tim, in Sly and Robbie. Uh, I mm-hmm. was never sure whether the Scatterlights were as a session group in Jamaica and one of my favorites Booker T and the MGs now Booker T and the MGs and uh, and the Funk Brothers particularly they had their sound they sounded they were a band or they were bands and they sounded like it. You listen to all these records, and I'm not saying they were homogenous, far from it, but they were recognizable. All right, it's that group of musicians. Whereas you listen to the Wrecking Crew, and I'm not saying it's a bad or a good thing, It's just it just is. Whereas you listen to a lot of these records, and you know, like The Beat Goes On, or Strangers in the Night, or The Theme from the Monkeys, whatever you listen to, and I would have never picked that there were common musicians between any of those records where oh, so no. to me maybe with the exception of the of the songs produced by phil specter because he had his that own wall of sound thing, that, yeah. that wall of sound thing but apart from that the musicians it's what you were saying before tim about them being zealig they right will, that's will exactly play, what i'm talking about yeah. will play whichever way it works whereas the funk brothers were the representatives of the motown label the motown sound and booker t and the right. mgs were along with the barquets were the stack sound if you will. Here's my second question, okay? If they had corporations for songwriters, why didn't they have corporations for musicians? And what I mean by this is this idea that, of course, I understand there were musician unions and you had to pay your dues and all that. I get it. But it's like the Muscle Shoals guys could have amalgamated into a company. The Racking Crew could have amalgamated into a company. They were so good and they produced so many hits. They could have said, look, we're going to basically start a company with our own crew, with our own gang. I think there's a lot of reasons why they wouldn't do that. You know, there's a difference between coming in, playing a gig and leaving and running a business. And right. running a business is a whole sure. other thing. Sure. But I think these guys got to a point, though, where they knew that the labels were really starting to lean on them and just say, oh, my God, like, you guys are the linchpin. You know, without you guys, we ain't got bupkis. And I'm not trying to say that these guys, you know, suddenly you go from the artistic into the capitalistic. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that you pay the fiddler what he's worth. 
And, well, and I think for a lot of these guys, you know, like they're just saying, well, we had to feed my kids. So I, I worked from nine in the morning until 10 at night. And it's just like, I well, don't think, I don't think they were poor. I, I think they did well. But there's a reason they worked from nine in the morning till 4 a.m. Because if sure, they said no, because if they said no, then somebody wouldn't call them back. And right. that was the fear that they had right. as being right. session musicians, freelance, sure. freelance anything. Which is why I think Tim is suggesting that if they would have formed a company, Company, there might be less of that threat of them being knocked back next time because that decision is being made by the company where you know that yeah. might have Absolutely. even if they they're like a whatever a typing pool it, it part that belong to a company rather than freelance musicians because let's not forget I think one thing which is agreed by everyone is that the term the wrecking crew didn't come into being until the 80s where Hal Blaine either mentioned it in interviews or when he was writing his autobiography and that's where that term came Amen. It's not just Carol Kay that accuses him of that, of, of inventing that name. And I don't see why she has a problem with that name. And I think even Denny said this in an interview that they didn't really have a name. I think like Carol Kay said, if anything, we were known as the click, but that's more like a descriptive term rather than a name. To be fair, like looking back, I mean, at the time, all of them were probably just happy to be able to play. I'm not saying, you know, suddenly somebody gets an inkling to get bigger than britches, but, you know, it's just this whole thing where after two or three four or five number one hit singles that you're associated with you would start to figure that you might want to get some better representation or some more stable representation you know or for example tommy not saying well i'm the guy that it's all about or, or hal blaine saying i'm the guy that's all about no they were all just kind of like no man like we're a gang man we're fingers on a hand it's the hand that gets the job done not the single fingers it just always struck me kind of as funny where a lot of these people were just kind of like they never looked further and just was kind of like because okay, they were musicians. I mean, I'm telling you right now, I <laughs> I toured with a couple of bands and there are not a lot of musicians that I've met that think about the future a whole hell of a lot. No, that's true. I'm not trying to look at it from a capitalistic perspective. They had so much value that they brought so much you can't cast pearls amongst swine, you know, it's just... <laughs> well, I mean, so my, here's my thing about that. 100% understand what you're saying. And also, I will also say that I have nothing against capitalism. I, I really don't. I think it's not such a terrible crime. Because, you know, you have to pay the bills. You've got to pay right. for your, your kids. You have kids. Keep the lights on, yeah. Sorry, I have Billy Bragg on the phone. Sorry, he wanted to speak to you, Karen. <laughs> So I, the thing is that the kind of business that they're in, it's weird. It's the same thing with, you know, with acting, with art, with writing, things like that, where the people who are paying the bills, okay, if it's say it's a record company and they're the ones that are saying, sure, we hire these guys. They're good. You can hire them to be the studio uh, musicians. But if they start acting up and saying, hey, man, we should be getting paid more then you end up on some kind of blacklist. It just gets harder to find a gig unless you're someone like Brian Wilson who says, I insist on working with this person, this person, and this person. There are other people who don't have that kind of clout and then who don't have that kind of insight either. So they don't necessarily know the difference between a Carol Kay and Joe bass player. People who are studio, who are studio runners, who are the, 
the high muckety mucks, they might like music. They might not. <laughs> they like to make money. And that's not a crime wave, but they don't necessarily yeah. understand the nuances of the music that's being played. Right. So if somebody acts up and says, hey, man, I should be getting paid more, they'll say, well, you know, Earl Palmer won't do it, then get Hal Blaine. I don't right. give a crap. You look at somebody like Elton, the first couple of albums that Elton had, he didn't have the clout that he had when go by Yellow Brick Road. Did you know Elton was a session musician before he started recording? Yes. In England, there was a uh, the talent agency Witch Season, which was managed by Joe Boyd, and that sort of represented like that whole folk thing, like Nick Drake, uh, right. Fairport Convention, mm. um, and so Elton John was hired before he recorded anything under his own name. I think he was still probably Reginald Dwight at this point, and you can find this on YouTube. It's amazing where he is bringing to life for publishing purposes a whole bunch of songs from Nick. Drake and hearing Elton John, for instance, doing Time Has Told Me is, I mean, look, Nick Drake's original, it's the pinnacle, but Elton John recording this for publisher demos, it's, mm. it, it works. I never would have thought, but he, he does a beautiful job. Yeah, he was a session musician, so he fully understood. And, and you were talking before about you listening to that album of uh, Leon Russell and Elton John. It's Elton, another session musician who the two of them had found their niche. But he might have decided that you know I'm I'm just quite happy to get publishing royalties for songwriting for other people or whatever. But the ten foot boots for Tommy were calling him, I guess. Here's an interesting thing too that I find is with the session guys, with anybody who was a session musician, they never had a problem was sleeping in the same bed with other people. Whereas you had, like, for example, the one thing I like about the film, where you talk about uh, Cher when she's only like 16 years old and she's coming in, she's just like, I'm just sitting there like a gadfly. What do I do? What do I say? Like, and it's just amazing. But I mean, she's coming in as a foreign element. But when you get a lot of the session guys, I find not just the racking crew, but anywhere, you get guys coming in working with other guys. And it's just like, well, this guy's a metal guy and this guy's a blues guy and this guy's a jazz guy and I, we don't know what's going to happen here but it goes together like stinking shit because it just molds because these guys are all session guys and they just know how to be so flexible they know how to merge think of another band that wasn't session musicians but we had a flamenco guitar player a classical keyboard player and a jazz drummer and that was the doors sometimes it can be disastrous but where they have a vision of what they want to do the disparate elements this is my experience let me put it into the pot rather than I'm going to remain fixed on what I know how to do and you have to adapt to me. It's like, right. this is what I got to contribute. As far from the uh, wrecking crew as possible, you get a guy like John Zorn. How Zorn, you know, would how basically, yeah, how diverse. I mean, he could bring in so many different people and they just pull it together and it's just, it's like alchemy and they just do it. Zappa. Oh, <laughs> duh. <laughs> 
You said the Z word. Bum, 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 my exactly. No, that's just it. No, no, the example was exactly it. You know, overnight sensations. I mean, like, you know, beef heart, all of it. Bringing people together and you're just like, well, I wonder if I mix chocolate and peanut butter, what would happen? You know, it's like, boom, you know, there you go. Yeah. I guess I, got, I would say this is a third question about this documentary. They get into the whole thing about television, the advent of television, you know, with the Batman theme, Bonanza, all of this. I wonder why the Wrecking Crew didn't score more like films. They must have been doing more film work. That's just not discussed in the documentary because the whole reason that these guys came into being was because the studio system broke down in the mid-50s and you had a lot of these out-of-work musicians and uh, Los Angeles recording scene said, hey, come, we got work for you. Hmm. Uh, But films still had to be scored, but they just weren't done by in-house studio orchestras or in-house studio bands. There were session musicians. There's also, there was a real delta between film and television at that time it depends on what country you're dealing with too because in england there wasn't so much of a delta because you know people directed tv shows and then they went and directed a film and actors did both but in america not so much like it was a big deal when it's one of the reasons steve mcqueen didn't want to do wanted dead or alive because he was afraid that it would brand him as a tv actor and he'd never get a movie part james garner's like the first guy that went back and forth and he went from Maverick the TV show then he was in uh, The Great Escape and a whole bunch of other films and then he went back to TV and did Rockford Files but he's one of the he was like the first successful switchback so I know that the musicians weren't exactly the same thing but it wouldn't surprise me to find that people thought you know no film musicians are over here TV musicians are over here that wouldn't surprise me knowing the attitude about TV versus film. Yeah, I mean, because that just was the thing. It was a really big deal. People made big choices in their careers based on, should I do a TV show? Is it going to kill my... Let me put an idea idea out there. Could you guys imagine a Wrecking Crew Bond theme? The whole thing about the Wrecking Crew is that they were, it's just interesting. I think they could have done other things. They chose, however, not to really write, but to interpret. So that's what they chose to do. But of course, one of the bands that I mentioned before, Booker T and the MGs, were both their own thing as well as being in-house session musicians for all the Stax artists as well or many of the Stax artists so it's shown that it could be done an interesting part uh, aspect of the film too where they're talking about the wrecking crew as being kind of interpreters where you know there was a lot of people that couldn't read music they're like what do you make of this and they basically you know they knew that they had to rely on the wrecking crew to read the music and to kind of you know lay it out for them in sound because these guys didn't have the chops or the wherewithal to read the notes or any of it 
And I just thought that was really interesting to going into what you were saying, you know, Carrie, about, you know, people just being able to pick things up. But uh, the guys with the money and a lot of the guys that were sitting in the back, you know, the, the chin scratchers, they couldn't read the, the notes. They couldn't read the music. You know, they were just kind of like, well, what can you guys do with it? What was the one song that they thought was really going to take off and it didn't? The Tina Turner song? Yeah, right. River Date yeah, Mountain, River Mountain, High. Mountain yeah. High. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, the end of Spectre Vision. I thought it was interesting that Cher called him Philip all the time. You brought up Cher before, just as a side point. There was that story. I don't remember if it was in the film or if I heard it in an interview, but Denny Tedesco was doing music videos a long while ago, and he was making a music video. He wasn't actually directing, but he was on the set making music videos, I think as a grip, and he sidles up to Cher, and oh, this big star, but hey, um, you worked with my dad. Oh, who's your dad? Tommy Tedesco and all of a sudden she melted and became the 16 year old girl again and that is what got her in the film oh you're Tommy's son yeah yeah of course of course I just thought that was a lovely story there's another point I went and wrote down I was thinking about this all week it's not specifically something that this film you'd say is guilty of it's really any documentary any book about some facet of history but it's only looking at that in the case of the Wrecking Crew documentary it's talking about these musicians and these musicians only and what they did. So it's very easy to watch this and get the impression that, oh, these guys were responsible for every top 40 hit that came out at the time, which is not the case. But it's also easy to get the presumption along with that and with Standing in the Shadows of Motown and Muscle Shoals that there were no bands recording in America doing their own thing, which is obviously bullshit because I've got a couple of box sets of Nuggets stuff and there's also the Boulders sets and the Pebbles sets. There's yep. so much garage yep. rock and roll. So like really hardcore rock and roll, which was, you know, in, in England was the case because we always sort of hear that the night that the Beatles appeared on the Ed Sullivan show in America, everyone went out the next day to pick up an instrument. Everyone wanted to be a Ringo. Everyone yep. wanted to be a George Harrison. Everyone wanted to play an instrument and do their own songs. They inspired that sort of thing. But yet an alternative facet of history, which you get from watching The Wrecking Crew or any other film about session musicians, is that, no, it was business as usual. These people would form these bands, but not in my studio. Time is money. You don't get to do that. But of course, the beauty of listening to you know, the Nuggets box set and hearing uh, so many bands, 13th Floor Elevators and, yep. and the Sonics and millions of other bands like that. That, is that smaller labels the Wrecking Crew were for the big labels for your Columbia's and, and for your A&M's but all these small bands these are the ones who saw the Rolling Stones saw the Beatles they saw those British invasion bands and they got to record on the smaller labels so I mean I know it's not the place of a documentary about the Wrecking Crew to look at 
here's the alternative. Another thing that I was sort of thinking about just like yesterday was when you normally watch a music documentary that's set in the 60s, like when we watched Tim, I don't think we watched it for the show, but you know, we're both fans of what stacks. And so they tell the social context, what led to the what stacks concert, you know, the, the riots from years before in yeah. the County of Watts in Los Angeles. And there've been documentaries that will tell about the riots in Detroit about, was it the, the night James Brown saved America? I can't yeah. Something about James Brown calling for calm. So many documentaries about music in the 60s that will bring up the story of Martin Luther King or John F. Kennedy, and because it works in social context about civil rights movement and how that affected the music, what it did to the musicians. It, social context is absolutely necessary. And in the Wrecking Crew documentary, because they're sort of a bubble unto themselves. People from the outside are coming to the inside. There's no need for social context. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing or a good thing, but yeah. I just sort of thought that was a very interesting thing that, unlike of so many other documentaries about music of that period, right. there's no mention made of what else was going on in America uh-huh. right. at the time. You had the Wrecking Crew involved in so much revelatory music and so much music that has so much soul and so much passion and so much meaning. And then you get... You're not knocking Spanish flea, are you? No, I mean, you know, hey, man, Herb Alpert was a guy who tried to be the epitome of cool, even into his older age when he shouldn't have been the epitome of cool, right? I mean, like, he he, he pushed it into the 80s and beyond. But it just makes me laugh. You want the deep, dumb funk? We'll give you the deep, dumb funk. You want the psychedelic? We'll give you the psychedelic. You want the sterile white ass? We'll give you the sterile white ass, you know? (laughs) And that's a little Spanish flea. I mean, like, it's just... That was something that I was thinking about uh, once again with the diversity because they speak a lot in the film about how these musicians came in and they said, you know, we love the rock and roll. Okay, anyone got the charts for that Frank Sinatra session? Anyone got the charts for that Herb Alpert disguise in love? Anyone got those charts for the jingles that we're going to be recording this evening? And they could probably go a whole day without doing anything remotely rock and roll. And yet I I made a note here of about five or six key musicians and the songs that they appeared on. So I'll just read one song. I've I've got about five or six for everyone, but here's what some of these guys did. So Tommy Tedesco was on Twisting the Night Away from Sam Cooke. Somewhere up a New York way Where the people are so gay Twisting the night away Hal Blaine. I mean, if he did nothing else, that drum intro to Be My Baby by the Ronettes. Yep. Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> boom, boom, bam. Liberty DeVito and Billy Joel have been thanking him ever since. Carol Kay was on Time Is On My Side. Irma Thomas, a soul classic. Time 
Glenn Campbell, uh, before he gets to be known in his own right, he's playing on River Deep Mountain High. Leon Russell. I love this, and it's a perfect time of the year for it. He's playing on Bobby Boris Pickett's Monster Match. Monster Match. Yep. That, yep. that, that just blew me away. I knew that. Uh, <laughs> yep. I was working in the lab late one night when my eyes beheld an eerie sight for my monster from his slab began to rise and suddenly, to my surprise, he did the match. He did the Monster Match. The monster it was a graveyard smash. He did the match. It caught on in a flash. He did the match. He did the monster match. Plaz Johnson plays on oh, another Wrecking Crew member who made it in his own right. Uh, Plaz Johnson plays on Dr. John's I Walk on Gilded Splinters. Holy shit. So these guys did have rock and soul chops, as well as playing on Spanish Flea and on Strangers in the Night. To give the props to Spanish Flea, okay, a friend of mine was recently saying, talking about all this EDM shit now and all this electronic, how can all these kids recognize all this shit as singles when it's just boop, 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 boop. I said, do you remember Popcorn? Oh my God! Of course, I said, do, yes. you, do you remember Little Spanish Flea? Do 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 do. You know, I mean, <laughs> do you remember what was it? You remember Miko? I do. Yes. Star Wars, the Star Wars. Oh yeah, yeah, was, yeah, 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 yeah. But when his Star Wars when when number one, people don't get this. You know, and I'm not trying to say that nothing is new. It's just that you you only live within the framework of your own history, like of your own lifetime, or even shorter than that. Now with Thanks to TikTok, but you know, <laughs> but to go back and the look, it's just like there's people that just laid the ground down for so much. And now it's just like in a different way. And it's it's apples and oranges, okay, to me. But you look at somebody like Daft Punk or you look at uh, other, you know, current artists that are trying to diversify and go into different ways. The Wrecking Crew kind of set this platform. Some of the guys that planted the roots for a lot of future artists to have the initiative to say, you know, well, let's pull all these people in together and see and, and create a gumbo, create a stew. And if it works, we can stay together and try to see if we can go in another direction, take our tentacles and uh, and kind of diversify. But I think that the Wrecking Crew, you know, in what they did, what they established, I don't think that they were looking at setting an inspiration, you know, or, or trying to kind of promote uh, creativity of future generations. I think these people were just trying to do the best they could do, play what they could play, love the music they were making, and keep the lights on and feed their kids. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. But I think that in effect, they set a huge goalpost for future generations 
to kind of say, well, you know, let's pull people all in together and see what happens. And for most of their time together, their names weren't on the album covers. No. No one knew, no one cared. In fact, I can think of, I mean, I'm sure there are tons more, but the first album that I know of where the name Joe Osborne is on the album cover, where the name Hal Blaine is on the album cover, is an obscure little record called Bridge Over Troubled Waters mm-hmm. by Simon and Garfunkel. <laughs> and I love the stories about how Hal Blaine gets that sound on the boxer. La da 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 boom ba ba ba. Yeah. Taking the drums, I think, was it out in the elevator shaft or out in the hallway or something mm-hmm. like that? No, it was it was the elevator shaft. So by that stage, it's not just about yeah, get this done in three hours. Let's right. get let's be creative. Well, with somebody like a Paul Simon or a Brian Wilson or somebody like that right. who musically way ahead of their time and eclectic both of them and able to think of new ways of doing things i mean the beatles did some of that stuff like okay if we put the amp we slant it and we put it on a chair and then we you know (laughs) and we and he just uses pencils on a little (laughs) that'll sound like i know people have have done that everyone wants to diversify because nobody wants to be thought of as a one-trick pony another paul simon reference but <laughs> that's a future uh, see here movie we well, were saying Morris about the names not being on the albums and things I'm not trying to sound crass but it's kind of almost like having sex for the first time you know what you experienced you know what you felt you don't need to go around and tell everybody what you did <laughs> Because, I don't think it's exactly the same, but that's no, okay. But, you know, but you know, I'm just saying you don't need to. Hey, you know, you know that was me, right? You know, it's just kind of, <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> when you have to tell the person, you know. <laughs> yeah. and, and this is the funny thing with I think with a lot of musicians, right? Everybody wants to get paid, obviously, right? Everybody wants to be able to continue to live the life they live and doing what they do. After a while, a lot of musicians are like, I know what I did. Who gives a shit if anybody else knows what I did? They don't care. The music speaks for itself. I think that's the, that's the whole thing today in the age of social media is that, you know, and I don't mean to sound like the old guy in the porch, but there's a lot of mediocrity out there. But there's so much people saying, I did that. Look, I don't know if you're aware of this, but musicians have always had an ego and these guys just managed to hide it. Are you telling me but water they didn't, is wet? They didn't hide it because- water is wet? Because everybody in L.A., all the music people in L.A. knew these people. So these people were known. Whether or not John Q. Public in Erie, Pennsylvania knew who they were, they could give a crap. But everybody that was anybody, the music types, all those people knew who they were, knew what they did, knew what they could do. So their ego could be assuaged for that. Because I do think that, yes, people have egos. Not, Not just musicians, but I just think people do like to be recognized for a thing that they did, especially if they did it particularly well. But you look at a lot of the original blues guys and original jazz guys who went from town to town and gig to gig and just scraped by. You know, they couldn't even stay in a town because of yeah. prejudice, you know, and they're pushed on to the next town. And it's almost like like being a working stiff. And when somebody comes up to him and says, you played on that album, you recorded that, I guess. Or else people were just like, it don't mean nothing, man. I, it's just what I do. There's a current guy I've always loved to death, Mike Watt, bass player extraordinaire. I actually talked to Mike and he says, I don't call it my bass, I call it my broom. He says, I get up on stage and I sweep. And that, it's not like saying they're not 
they're saying it's a job that they don't have any heart in it or they don't have it you know they don't have any weight in it they do but it's just it gets to a point for some people where it's just next 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 you just go on there was someone who i've known all my life uh, who worked like as a professional pianist and he played umpteen nights a week but he never came home and listened to music music was just a tool to do his job right so it's like us as music fans we like to think oh they live and breathe music but the reality of it is that for these people who have an their ego is not i want to sell myself to the public it's i want to make sure that you know i do a good job and you'll hire me for your next gig but the ego's in a different part of the brain a couple of session musicians who seems like they really did want to be in the spotlight and live that rock star lifestyle I'll take it back a little bit. So I was on the Facebook group for the podcast, A History of Rock Music in 500 Songs. Hello, anyone out there from that Facebook group, if you happen to be listening. Anyone out there who's not heard the podcast, I urge you to listen to Andrew Hickey's show, History of Rock Music in 500 Songs. It's the best podcast out there, music or anything. It's absolutely so well-researched. But anyway, I went into the Facebook group for that and I said, look, how many session musicians, I mean, apart from the people who did library music, which is a different bag altogether, or maybe soundtrack music, how many session musicians in the wrecking crew sense were there in England? Was there an English equivalent of the wrecking crew? Now, on the program, I'd heard Andrew Hickey make mention of a drummer called Clem Catini, who until the show I'd never heard of, but he worked on all the Joe Meek sessions. It's him drumming on Telstar. He plays on a tune that you'll know for sure, Tim. Maybe you'll know Kerry, Ernie, and he drove the fastest milk cart in the West for the Benny Hill show. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> but one song that's, it's a pantheon and rock and roll Johnny Kidd and the Pirates it's him drumming on Shaking All Over right so he's a you know, a monster of rock but you know, there were other musicians I was told in the group a drummer called Bobby Graham who was considered like the best drummer anywhere at the time a guitarist Big Jim Sullivan uh, another guitarist called Vic Flick but a group that has been described as being basically a group of session musicians who stood out on their own was a little thing you might have heard of called Led Zeppelin because we as you all know mm. Jimmy Page and John Paul Jones at least were big session guys and for years I'd heard the story that it was Jimmy Page doing the guitar work on you really got me but he's denied it for years it's not him he's not playing the guitar solo not sure if he's playing guitar at all on that session but he's certainly not playing the lead guitar break but having said that Bobby Graham who I mentioned before is the guy who's playing the drums on you really got me and Mick Avery was just put on the tambourine Bobby Graham also plays the drums on Gloria for them Oh, and it, unusual he plays on glad all over for the Dave Clark five and the group that's named for the drummer isn't even playing drums on that I was song. say that's like um, that's a really good drum. It is, but yeah. it's not the leader, not not the guy who it's named for. And Dusty Springfield's "I Only Want to Be with You." That's once again this guy Bobby Graham. So there was a session scene going on in England. So I just found that fascinating, and I love being in that group because there were a ton of people sure. who knew stuff and were willing to share that information. So anyone from that Facebook group, if you're listening in, howdy! Thanks for the information, much appreciated. I don't know anyone's names, but I know I listen to a Beatles station on Sirius FM, and they just talk about Beatles 
trivia ad nauseum, and it's really interesting. Peter Asher has a, a program on there, and he talks about different things. And I don't know the names of any of these session musicians. He has mentioned them, but I, I can't for the life of me remember them. But he talks about session musicians playing on Beatles albums and getting like scale, which for then was eight pounds or something an hour. I mean, it was like... A joke. Yeah, to play on a Beatles tune. Like you, I'm short on remembering the names of any of these musicians, but you would have had like a string quartet playing on yesterday. There was, I've forgotten her name, but I just read something about her maybe a few months ago. The lady who played the harp oh, on She's Leaving she's Home. Leaving home yeah. Anyone who's playing the horns on All You Need Is Love. Any favorite moments in the film? I mean, we've been discussing a lot of peripheral stuff that's important to the whole Wrecking Crew thing, but... It just made me smile to see so many familiar faces. Like, for example, like I said, Brian, Wilson, Leon, to see Cher, and to see a lot of people that were coming into Discovery. It's really funny because it's like you've got, and I'm, I'm not trying to go off on a tangent here, but you've got younger kids today that are growing up in the age of the internet. But then you have all of us who saw the advent of the internet, saw it begin. And, you know, for a lot of the musicians with the Wrecking Crew, there's people that were coming in that were just like, my God, this is possible? With Cher and Brian Wilson and Leon and like a lot of them, like when you could see the potential of, of what could really be and what was happening and how they could just pick things up. They changed the times, not just with, through their music, but they changed the culture or they went along with the new culture Absolutely. because they say early on in the film that the session musicians, the older session musicians who they ended up replacing, those guys, these jazz cats and classical musicians came in to the studio. We're not even talking about doing a concert. They came in wearing a suit and a tie. Right. And these guys, they said they came in wearing jeans and smoking cigarettes and yeah, yeah. t-shirts. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and that was not, I mean, like, We've heard the stories millions of times about the Beatles working in Abbey Road studio and they had sessions like from 10 in the morning till lunchtime, and then two till five. And then they had for dinner. And then, oh, I don't know. Well, they didn't really go into the evening, I don't think. Not at first, but they had those formal sessions. It was like a day on the job right. and they changed everything in that regard. But it seems like the wrecking crew, the, the who they were replacing, they said, well, we're part of the younger culture. I mean, we might have the same sort of instrumental chops that you guys do, but we're going with the younger, the younger way. Let's not make it so formal. We'll enjoy playing more. We're playing and jeans and it doesn't need to be formal this is the times they are a changing let me remind you of something the sex pistols and men in punk rock <laughs> well, yeah they could have no, made but, it no but what i'm crew. saying what i'm saying is that you know what i'm saying is that what everybody thought was so radical about the pistols with punk rock this to me is something far more subversive but radical the pistols had their brand but with this it was just like we got our fingers in this 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 i mean this was more of an octopus man you know and i mean this was more of you know far reaching and far more influential far more revelatory but until the 80s or the 90s no one knew how revelatory it right. was that's the, that, right. that's just it though you know but yeah, when the no pistols, one outside the industry right 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 no one knew but i mean but when the pistols came around you know i mean it, it was you know as subtle as a fart in church but with the wrecking crew now it's like you look back and it's just like something you didn't even know was far more subversive and far more like a silent bomb than something that tried to be loud you know in the 70s 
you know, like, I mean, like, here's the thing, like, you know, in the 70s with glam and the 70s with punk, here's something you never even heard that just snuck under the border and just came mm-hmm. out. And now all of a sudden it's just like this poof. Favorite moment for you, Kerry? When they were describing how Brian Wilson was teaching everyone the parts and good vibrations. And I can't remember which one of the musicians was telling the story, but he was saying he goes to the first person, your part is dun 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 dun, dun and he sings the part. Your part is dun 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 dun, dun. your part is and he goes to each consecutive musician and sings the parts. And then the first guy by then the first guy's forgotten his, but not Brian. Boom. He just goes right back and says <laughs> Here, dun, 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 dun. I shouldn't dwell on <laughs> Brian Wilson on the Beach Boys, but it's hard for me not to. I grew up with listening to him, and my, the only two albums my dad had oh no, he had three albums he had Pet Sounds, Holland, and Surf's Up. So those were three brilliant albums. He didn't have the like do 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 surfing in the beat. I can't remember if it's the film that made this known or I read it somewhere, but the wrecking crew really only tended to take over the musicianship of the Beach Boys from their album Today, which was maybe a couple of albums before uh, Pet, Pet Sounds, Sounds. Yeah. and the rest of them. They did play their own instrumentation, and they were the fine. Five or six you know, and they were fine on co- in concert. They played the music, you know, the music in concert, right. and they right. would have been okay in the studio too but they wouldn't have been as precise as quickly it's maybe not even about precision here it's just about some level of creativity thinking well you've got the chops to fulfill this vision i've got this sound in my head and al jardine dennis carl you can't do this specific vision they talked about the association and they said they could have done it but it would have taken them nine hours and it took us 10 minutes and we were done with the song it's the same kind of thing i mean obviously nothing to 10 minutes on pet sounds but i mean (laughs) it's funny carrie you mentioned lou adler because he's one of my heroes too because of lou adler lou adler was involved in in two projects that i've always been fond of and that being up in smoke chichi chong and and spirit. One of the things I did like though too was when Jimmy Webb said something about the star maker machinery. And I kept thinking, because that's a lyric in a Joni Mitchell song, Free Man right. in Paris, which is about right. David Geffen, I believe. Right. And and so I just saw my musical like <laughs> All these connections. Hi, yeah, yeah. It was so great. Yeah. He's actually playing here in the next month or two, I Jimmy think. Webb? Wow. Yeah. I am a lineman for the county. And I drive the main road. Searching in the sun for another. I hear you singing in the wire. Wichita lineman. I just love it. But also the Fifth Dimension tunes. All the Fifth Dimension. Oh, yeah. Course, like, I could listen to Mar- Marilyn McCoo sing all week. That's I mean, she's another just, one, too. Her voice. Would you like to ride in my beautiful balloon? Would you like to ride? Yeah, 
Gee, I, her know, voice. Oh, my gosh. This took me back to being three years old. I had a flashback watching this documentary because it's crazy how your brain works with Polaroids, how you can have these instant snaps in your head of a picture of your past. I remember being three years old, laying in a bed in the first house I lived in, and hearing beautiful balloon. Oh, yeah. and just, up, up in the know, sky, yeah. Up, up in the sky, my beautiful balloon, you know. And hearing that on the radio. And then years later, hearing Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis Jr. doing their thing. So I remember we were watching and discussing on the podcast, I don't think you were around, Tim, Summer of Soul. Right. Uh, maybe about a year and a bit ago. And they're speaking with Marilyn McCoo, talking about you know, the Fifth Dimension's involvement with that and they were so keen to be part of that because one of the criticisms that they had was that they didn't sound black enough and they were incensed by that though saying what does that mean am i not black what 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 the hell does that even mean but yeah a gorgeous song really gorgeous song and i hate that people are going to criticize others for creating beautiful art because it doesn't match an image that they that they have in their head I want to mention two other things. So Glenn Campbell's story that I really, really loved gave me a laugh. There was some artist who was singing a song. The band was playing along and they went up to Tommy Tedesco and said, hang on, wait, 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 stop, stop. You're playing all that wrong. What, what's, what the hell's going on here? And then he goes and has a look at Tommy Tedesco's sheet music and he's playing it upside down. His sight reading was so good that he's reading it upside down and playing it as it looks like that. <laughs> Just that, yeah, that's that's incredible. But yeah, an, an amazing sight reader, an amazing musician who really could play anything. And really, I, I just sort of wanted to end this on the whole Tommy and son connection. So yeah, Denny had been trying to get money, as he said, like earlier on, Tim, to get this film finished off. And he ended up, funnily enough, the no musical instrument company would give him funds to finish it off. But I think there are a couple of car dealerships that put money in. I think it was a musician's union that put some money into it and he did a Kickstarter and he got enough money to be able to pay musicians off and pay publishing rights off. And Mm. uh, one of the suggestions that he was given was make it a little bit personal. Don't make it about your father, but bring your connection to your father into the film. And there's just a little bit of that, you know, where he says, I wanted to make this story about my father. Otherwise, his father is in the film like Hal Blaine, like Carol Kay, like anyone is in the film. But I like just that little bit, that little bit of narration where he makes it personal. It's not over the top. It's just enough. And it, it touched my heart. Right. I thought yeah. a, a really good move. And this is overall, I mean, like we've been talking a lot about our thoughts about The Wrecking Crew, maybe not as much about the film itself. But if you haven't seen the film, and I'm sure most of our listeners will have seen this at some stage, but it's a lovely film. And I, I thought it was a beautiful thing to do the round table discussion mm. in the oh, yeah. Danny Rose yeah. fashion, yeah. because nice. it's not just another Talking Heads film. There's a lot of music footage there's yeah there's a talking head sort of thing but doing it in this fashion singled it out from so many other music documentaries yeah i was gonna say that it floors me that like what you just said about none of the musical instrument companies had funded this because it was just like how could you not see the opportunity to advertise and say gibson guitars yeah as played by tommy tedesco or whatever or you know such and such bass recommend Marker bass is played by Carol Kay with the Wrecking Crew. They're only looking at, you know, two weeks past, two weeks ahead. 
They've, they've got know, somebody who's studied the market and told them what the demographic is for right, buying exactly, these instruments, exactly. and it doesn't involve people who care about musicians' past. No, no, I see this with film a lot, with younger people getting into film, and not everyone, because a lot of younger people that get into film have eclectic tastes and will look back and forward and, you know... And, and different genres and all this kind of stuff. But there there are people who look like, oh, it's an old movie. It's from 1990, you know, and you're just like, oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, it's true. I, but it, we have the, I have these conversations all the time where people are like, I, they won't watch black and white films. They won't watch films not in English. What? Oh, yeah, that's true. No, so, no uh, subtitles. No, I don't want to read a movie. Oh, my God. Right. Right. <laughs> We're going to get within the next three years where I don't watch films. I don't know about that. I don't think so. Although, I you know, not. and I'm and I'm hoping that somebody like Scorsese, who is such a film preservationist, passes that down to somebody <laughs> because he's older. It'd be nice for someone to carry on right. that, that wonderful tradition. But I liked this movie and I thought it was directed nicely. And I thought it was really cool when they said all the stuff that Tedesco had done, like right. like Bonanza and, and like right. MASH and Teenagers and, yeah. and Batman and stuff. I was like, oh yeah. my gosh, that's why. Because no, it hadn't also- occurred to me. I was thinking about right. hit songs. I wasn't thinking right. about advertising jingles because they used to be good music that opened right. series i right. mean mission impossible and the man from uncle well, and the prisoner one, and you know here's one that'll blow your mind okay carol k barney miller is that her playing bass on that oh, wow nice. yeah amazing so, i mean like uh, you know, she had but, but this film to to close what we're doing here this film is is a tentpole and a real testament to let people know in the future that all of these great songs that they've heard at their weddings and in karaoke and on the beach and in the car, you know, and all the little jingles to sell the new cars, you know, in the future, we are the e-cars and all of these things. These are the people that made the magic. These are the wizards, the alchemists that were hidden behind the wall like Oz. And they weren't exposed until later. Do you think it's appropriate that they were exposed by Toto, another band of session musicians? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> but they need. But the point of what I'm saying is, they needed their day in the sun, and Denny Tedesco has done that with this yeah. film. He's given them their acknowledgement and their recognition. And unfortunately, for many of them that have sadly passed, they're not getting the residuals. And hopefully, their families are getting the residuals. But I just want to say that I think this this was great, man, because even my wife, who's not really a music person per se, she likes what she likes. She was really starting to watch it and get enthralled and says, oh, my, they did that and that and that. How could the same people, like, you know, she, she just kind of, mm-hmm. you know, couldn't believe there was such a musical think tank. And I said, oh, yeah, you know, absolutely. The postscript to this conversation, I saw on Facebook this week a trailer for a new documentary, once again, about session musicians. And the film is called The Immediate Family, about L.A. session musicians. And who's directing it is one Danny Tedesco. So I sent a note to the good folk at Pantheon and said, hey, does anyone know how to get in contact with Danny Tedesco so we can speak about this Immediate Family film? I woke up the next morning. I had an email in my 
inbox from Danny Tedesco saying, hey, I hear you're talking about my film, The Wrecking Crew, and you want to talk to me about Immediate Family. So early in the new year, early in 2024, we're going to have Danny Tedesco himself come on the show. And no doubt we'll be talking as well about The Wrecking Crew, but the focus will be about his new film, Immediate Family, which were another group of LA session musicians, Danny Korchmar, Russ Kunkel, Leland Sklar. Once again, people who, if you've read the liner notes on your albums, you know who these people are. Right. Lilo Scar played with James Taylor, and he also played with Mike McConnell, Phil Collins, and a lot of people, yeah. So we'll be speaking with him about that, and he's doing the Lord's work, <laughs> and, uh, making yeah. these people making these people known. So thank you to Peter Ferrioli, and there are another couple of people who wrote to me saying, oh, yeah, we can get you in contact with them. Uh, so thanks, anyone in our beautiful Pantheon family for um, help, offering to uh, set up with Denny. So very, very exciting that'll happen early next year. We hope that you've enjoyed this discussion about the, the Wrecking Crew. Probably, actually, I should reiterate one more postscript is that they said that uh, at the end of the film that the whole concept of the Wrecking Crew died down because there were a lot more bands in LA that were working as bands they didn't need session musicians quite as much so it'll be a good question to ask Denny well hang on if they didn't need session musicians quite as much then how did the immediate family right. come about so that'll be interesting we'll leave that for January I want to say before we leave that this film is available on Tubi for those that have access to it and I think it's also available on Amazon Prime I watched it on a service called Beamer Film which is very similar to Canopy if you have a library membership then you can see it on beamer film although i believe that if you don't have a library card unlike canopy you can actually go for a paid subscription but if you've got a library card and your local library offers beamer film then it's available on that and for anyone in australia for the next well let's say through to the end of november 2023 i know it's got a few weeks left it's on sbs on demand so uh several ways that you can watch that i'd like to actually get hold of the dvd because Apparently, there's like a whole extra DVD of interviews that never made it into the original 90-minute oh, film. Wow. So that will certainly be worth watching. So I think I'll be uh, searching out a DVD copy of that. I also want to give a special shout-out to the host of the all-time Top 10 podcast, Mr. Ben Eisen. I know that in a few weeks, well, from the time of this recording, he'll be releasing an episode of All-Time Top 10 that focuses on session musicians. So the timing is pretty close together. So I thought it'd be appropriate to say, hey, if you're a subscriber, to all time top 10 you got this to look forward to if you're not a subscriber to all time top 10 then i recommend that you do shows a lot of fun Anyway, that's enough about Wrecking Crew and Immediate Family and all that. Look for uh, January or February where we'll be having Denny Tedesco on the show. And actually, we've got at least three interviews lined up for early in the new year. So we'll be uh, scratching the interview itch. But we also like to do our round table thing. So that's what's going to be for the rest of this year. So, Tim, you're in charge of uh, programming November 2023. What is episode 111 going to be focused on? I thought we would go somewhere, a place 
is where I've always loved these artists that kind of, we're music-related podcasts, obviously, but we also can delve into the arts. And the film that I want to talk about for the next month is a film called Theory of Obscurity, a film about the resonance. Max has been after me to watch this for ages. So finally we get to watch it. Right. That's on ca- that, that is on canopy. I don't know what kind of background you guys have with the residents. I think this is this is going to be a very interesting discussion. Looking forward to it. I'm embarrassed to say that I know that lots of people have been saying, "Hey, watch this film. Listen to the re- you, you went to the resident, and I've I know the big eyeball. That's all I know. Right. So um, I'm Kerry as well. Uh, <laughs> I'm no, immensely looking forward to watching that and having the discussion next month. I have something in mind for December, but I've forgotten what it was. I've got a month to remember. Um, yeah, look, it's what happens when you. I, I was going to say when you get to this age, but you guys are both my age, and you probably have a better memory than I do. <laughs> Anyway, so, um, look, this has been absolutely wonderful. I've really, really enjoyed this uh, episode, really enjoyed this conversation. If you want to get in contact with us, email us at seeherepodcast at gmail.com. We have uh, a Facebook group where we discuss music-related films. That's facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash seeherepodcast. We're always up for suggestions. Join the group, start a music film related conversation. If you want to start a, a regular film or just ordinary music conversation, we're happy for that to take place. Sure. But the focus of that group is music films. It's a place for that. Any input is embraced. It certainly is. So until next month, look after each other. The world is turning into a scary place. Well, I'm not, it's not turning. The world is a scary place, as you all know, just listening to the news headlines. So please look after your loved ones. Be nice to each other. And until next month, all the best. Cheers. Cheers. Bye-bye. Hey, Mr. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.